I'm Cassie. Welcome to Crime and Cassie and all things creepy. I hope you're having the best day and if you're not, I hope this makes you feel better. I mean, that's weird, but we're all here. We're all fascinated by true crime. You guys know what I mean. Today, we're gonna be talking about murder amongst theater friends. By the way, for anyone watching this in video form, if I look 17 shades lighter than usual, it's only because I've stopped self-tanning for the year. Um, so don't be concerned. My natural shade is vampire. When I was in high school, I had to be taken to the hospital by ambulance. Uh, long story short, it was freshman year. Um, the school was very hot. I don't know what was wrong with their air conditioning, but I would go directly from gym class to the hottest room in the school and I passed out. Anyway, the EMTs were very concerned at how pale I was. And I was like, no, this is just my natural color bra. Oh, also, as I came to in the classroom, the teacher was shaking me. Again, this is the beginning of freshman year. He didn't know who I was. So he was shaking me awake saying, Emily, Emily. So there's that. At least he didn't call me Casey, which is a lovely name. It's just not my name. It is hammering raining outside. So if you guys hear that, I do apologize. There's really nothing I can do about it right now. This story begins on the night of July 14th, 2013. Castmates and crew members from a community theater in Hartford, Wisconsin are gathering for a wrap party. They're celebrating a successful opening weekend of Fiddler on the Roof and they are letting loose. One of those cast members with arguably the most to celebrate is 19 year old Jesse Blodgett. Jesse was cast as the lead and that's a big deal in this small town. Jessie is home from college for the summer. She's described as having a contagious personality. She loved music, in particular the piano, and she loved to sing and was super, super talented. She was liked by pretty much everybody. She was very close with her parents. She also has a tight-knit group of friends from her high school consisting of Jessie, Kelly, Dan, Jackie, and Ian, who also happened to be a part of that community theater. So this rap party is a pool party. And as I mentioned, they're getting their party on. They're getting all cozy and flirty with each other. But some people are getting a little too cozy. You know what I mean? In particular, a couple of older men. Randy, who was a dancer in the play, and Jerry, who is the pretentious director of the play. Needless to say, Jesse is uncomfortable with these bozos and eventually leaves the party around 12.30, 1am with Kelly and the two of them make plans to see each other the next day. Lunchtime the next day, which would have been July 15th, 2013, Jesse's mom, Joy, returns home. She and Jesse had planned on having lunch together that day. When she gets home, she goes up to Jesse's room and there she discovers her 19 year old daughter is blue with ligature marks on her neck um, and she's unresponsive. She realizes her daughter is gone. She calls 911 and I'll tell you, it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to listen to. It's awful, it's gut-wrenching. You can really feel her pain in it, it's horrible. Jesse and her parents were incredibly close. She shared more than most do with their parents. Her dad, Buck, is understandably devastated and he starts to wonder whether some tree trimmers they had hired to trim a tree right outside Jesse's room could have returned to the house. But Joy then remembers that Jesse had been upset when she had returned from that rap party the night before. Joy tells investigators that she had waited up the previous night for Jesse and when she got home, she told her about these older men at the rap party and how uncomfortable they had made her. Investigators find that Jessie had actually written in her journal about that night and about those older men in question. I think I'm being corrupted. I think certain men are taking what should be platonic love and perverting it into a competition. 
I am not helpless. I will recognize problems and confront them without fear. God be with me. This, by the way, is so eloquently written for anyone, but a 19-year-old, wow. And to be that brave, investigators find that there's no forced entry, but Jesse's mom said she often left doors unlocked because of how safe their community was. Jesse's murder had been the third murder in 100 years in Hartford. Investigators questioned Randy, but he says he was just joking around at the party and meant no harm. But they find out that he was supposed to go into work the next day and just didn't show up. Suspicious. He ends up having an alibi, not to mention his cell phone records show that he was nowhere near the crime scene. So police pretty quickly clear him. I mean, the guy was probably hungover from a long night of harassing 19 year olds. So that's probably why he didn't show up to work. They end up clearing Jerry, the director as well, but still maybe stop shooting your shot with 19 year old girls and creeping them out. Meanwhile, that tight-knit group of Jesse's friends start to gather at her house. That had always kind of been like the hangout spot for them. I feel like Jesse had cool parents. Jackie, Dan, Kelly, and Ian come together to comfort Jesse's parents. With Randy and Jerry crossed off of their list, police go back to Jesse's journal. They notice that she had referenced her good friend Dan, who she had actually dated years earlier while in high school. She writes that Dan had thrown her for a loop when he tried to kiss her and that it had brought up some emotions. While all the events from Jesse Blodgett's murder are unfolding, a different crime is being pieced together in a nearby town of Richfield, which is about 10.5 miles from Hartford. July 12th, just three days before Jesse's murder, a woman named Melissa was walking her dog in Richfield Park and as she made her way back to her car, she could hear someone behind her. As she turns around, she's confronted by a man with a knife. He tackles her to the ground, a struggle ensues, and somehow she manages to get the knife from him. Her hand is badly cut, but she's able to get away, and she's even able to give a description of the man and the vehicle that he was driving. She described him as a white male, 18 to 20 years old, about 6'2", 210 pounds, light blonde hair, but very fair skin, and plaid shorts. She also said he was driving a blue Dodge Caravan. Based on the description of the van and the composite sketch, a patrolman at Richfield Park remembers seeing the van and running the plate. They go back and check, and the plate is registered to the Bartelts. They have a son named Daniel Bartelt, or as they call him, Dan. The same Dan and Jesse Blodgett's close circle of friends who Jesse had written about in her journal. At the same time, investigators are closing in on Dan as the attacker at Richfield Park. He's at the Blodgett's house, comforting her family, reminiscing about her when his phone rings. It's the investigators from Richfield and they want to speak to him. He says, okay, and never asks what it's about. He tells everybody he just has been called down to the police station and everyone basically reassures him, oh, it's just that they have to interview everybody in Jesse's inner circle and that's all it is. Daniel initially denies being at the park at all, but investigators are like, we know you were there, buddy. We have multiple witnesses. Finally, Dan breaks and says, I just wanted to scare someone. When police ask him where he just came from, he explains he just came from the Blodgett's house. They're stunned to say the least, but they start to ask him questions about Jesse. He's like, yeah, we were friends. We used to date. 
Investigators ask, what do you think happened to her? He says, I think she was raped and murdered. The problem with that is no one knows that she had been sexually assaulted. They didn't release that information. They don't have enough to arrest him for Jesse's murder, but it's safe to say at this point, he's a suspect. They do arrest him for the attack on the woman at Richfield Park. They then bring in the lead detective of Jesse's case to interview Dan. They ask about his relationship with Jesse and Dan becomes very emotional and says, well, we had a secret relationship because I'm dating another girl. Okay, Dan. They couldn't find anything in Jesse's journal to corroborate that. And I mean, why would Jesse have written that when he tried to kiss her, threw her for a loop, if they had this ongoing current relationship, you know? Dan is being dramatic and using his theater skills to appear like he's crying, but detectives aren't seeing tears. They ask him flat out where he was when Jesse was murdered. He says, I was out at Woodlawn Park. There happens to be surveillance footage at that park. And when they review the footage, they're surprised to actually see Dan. But it's around 12.30 p.m. when Jesse was murdered at 10 a.m. So it's definitely possible that he killed her and went to Woodlawn for an alibi. Detectives have a light bulb moment and they're like, what if he was dumb enough to dispose of evidence at Woodlawn Park? Get your hazmat suits, we're going dumpster diving. They find a box of frosted mini wheats and there's a surprise inside, but it's not a child's toy. They find ropes, as in something you might use to strangle someone or restrain someone and a bunch of wipes with blood on them. And if that's not enough for you, they find a homemade gag ball made from tape. They take these items and compare them to the marks found on Jesse's neck, and it appears to be a match. They get a search warrant for Dan's home and the van that he had been driving, and they find a book called The Interpretation of Murder by Jed Rubenfield. They also find searches on his laptop about serial killers, and uh, who does that? <laughs> Not me. What's insane is they found basically a snuff film where someone breaks in, sexually assaults a woman, strangles her, and then washes her body in a bathtub. Now, Joy indicated that Jesse had been wet when she found her. They take Dan's DNA and they compare it to the ropes found in the cereal box, but obviously that takes time. So meanwhile, they're asking Jesse's family and friends about Dan and they're all like, no, it couldn't have been Dan. He was a straight A student. He was a good kid. He loved Jesse. But the DNA evidence comes back and there's no doubt, only two profiles are on the ligatures, Jesse's and Dan's. After everything kind of sets in, Jesse's friend Jackie recalls an incident that Jesse had told her about only about a year before her murder. She said that she had woken up and found Dan standing there watching her. July 31st, 2013, Dan is charged with the first degree murder of Jesse Bludgett. They surmise that after the failed attempt on attacking Melissa days earlier and after being rejected by Jesse, he went to her house the next morning. They think that he knew the house and that Jesse would be home alone and he just thought she was an easy target. The jury finds him guilty after only two and a half hours of deliberation. Dan never admits to murdering Jesse and even says in court, this orange jumpsuit and these shackles don't make me guilty. And the judge says, no, the evidence makes you guilty. Pew. Mic drop. 
Police think if he hadn't been caught, he would have gone on to be a serial killer. And thank God, because I feel like if I saw this dweeb, I would not be intimidated at all. You just never know. So keep your guard up, ladies. Fellas too. Jesse's parents are left devastated. And like I said, that 911 call from her mom and to hear her dad give interviews, it breaks my heart. But they managed to turn their tragedy into something positive. They started Jesse's legacy project called Love is Greater Than Hate, aiming to end violence against women and having people choose love over hate. I think that's so amazing and I don't know, I wanna give them a hug. You can find more info on Jesse's legacy project at theloveisgreaterthanhateproject.com. This was Crime and Cassie and all things creepy. Thank you for tuning in. Please review, like, subscribe, share, comment wherever you are watching or listening so I can keep doing this for you. Stay safe out there, lock your doors, wear your SPF, and if your ex-boyfriend ever tries to kiss you, you punch him directly in the face. You set that tone. See you next time.